1: London has, of course, in the last couple of weeks, been enjoying more than its fair share of fog. And as soon as you turn that idea over in your mind, you realise how strongly associated London is with its fogs. I thought I'd better try and track down a fog expert for you. And with great serendipity, it transpires that Dr. Christine Corton of Wilson College, Cambridge, also known as Lady Evans, has uh, in this very week brought out a book on that subject. Good luck for her. Even better luck for us. Take a deep breath, it's about to get very, very foggy.
2: Hey baby, let me take you down So we'll play some strange sights in the sound. You ain't never seen the light before Just a stone throw from your front
1: the general area of Hobart and Chancery Lane and I have ducked in to a modest-looking entrance. In fact, I missed it the first couple of times I tried to find it, uh, so modest it was. And I'm in Gresham College at the Provost's office at Barnard's Inn Hall and we're going to be talking fog. It's a timely subject. In fact, the author of the book London Fog, my guest today, Christine Courtney, actually had uh, to bring forward the launch of that because of the climatic conditions here in London. Is- isn't that right?
2: Yes, I I have to say I can't really say that it's the publicity department from Harvard University Press who caused the fog, but it was very timely for me. Um, It happened last weekend and I had many journalists contacting me, asking me about the differences between the fog that London experienced last weekend and 19th century fog. Peace supers London particular, London ivy.
1: <laughs> I was leafing through the book and it really does bring us right up to the present day in terms of some of the e- ecological and environmental concerns that you address but it also goes way back in terms of the origins, I guess the industrial origins of the, the smog as well. Um, there's plenty to unpack but maybe first of all I think It's quite obvious to me through uh, cultural references, through films, a lot of paintings, Whistler and Turner come to mind, that the fog and London are heavily identified with each other. And I wondered if we maybe could start by thinking about how that's come about.
2: Yeah, I think uh, one of the premises I I make throughout the book is that Londoners were quite proud of their fog. I mean, obviously, other cities had their own industrial pollution problems. Uh, Edinburgh refers to their old Reiki. Uh, Manchester had a huge smoke problem, as did Birmingham, any of the new industrial towns. But my thesis really is that Londoners were proud of their fog. They identified it as particularly, peculiarly London. So they gave it these names such as London, particular which was actually a London Madeira wine that was imported specifically into London and it's also a term for a mistress so it makes it, it's an affectionate term but something that you don't really want to acknowledge too openly. So Londoners were proud of this fog, it represented for them industrial energy, industrial success but also the fact that people were in, in employment and could afford coal on their domestic fires. So for them it had a positive side as well
1: when would you mark the start of london fog
2: well, I, of course, have called my book The Biography, thereby maintaining it has a birth date and a death date. Um, the death date is very easy to say, which is the last smog was 1962 after the Clean Air Act of 1956. The birth date, I I have to acknowledge, is a bit hazy. Excuse the fog <laughs> <laughs> um There were smoke issues from as early as Queen Elizabeth I complaining that London was too smoky. John e- Evelyn in the 17th, 17th, century was complaining about London smoke. I maintain that London fog, the thick, heavy, greasy, yellow, black, smoky fog that I'm referring to really started in the early 19th century when the Industrial Revolution really took off.
1: There are quite a few striking images in your Book, some alarming even, and others very otherly, otherworldly. Could you talk us through a day in the mid Victorian smog?
2: Yes, well, it would have been very frightening. I mean, you wake up in the morning, you probably had expected fog to. Descend because November would have been filled with foggy days from November to February, actually. But November was the major month. You would wake up and everything would be dark. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And for those,
1: you you literally mean that?
2: Yes, I literally mean that. You could not see your hand in front of your face.
1: So you're existing in a in a bubble straight away that that is like a foot or two around your head, and that's it.
2: Absolutely, and of course, you know, sounds would be muffled as well. So you might hear the distant cry of somebody who's lost the image of the blind man tapping a stick it recurs throughout these descriptions of fog because of course they were the only ones who could get around easily. People would have to grope their way along London streets using railings and if they lost sight of the railings they might end up in the middle of the street and there were many many accidents where people were knocked over by horse and carriages they fell into the river because they couldn't actually see the embankment the edge of the river and you realize how many Victorians couldn't swim
1: this has turned ludicrous a lot faster than I anticipated you can't run a city like that
2: No, no. And of course, uh, there were outcries of why are we accepting this? But how do you resolve it without asking people to sacrifice the use of coal when there are no viable, cheaper alternatives? I mean... There were options. Um, There was smokeless fuel around, but it was very expensive. There were closed stoves, which were very popular in Europe. So when you go around the big cities of Europe, you see those lovely ornate stoves in the corners of stately homes. Well, there were less ornate ones in, in smaller homes. They were much more ecologically friendly because they would combust the the fuel much more efficiently therefore ensuring that the particulates from the leftover fuel wouldn't get into the air now one of the problems is that um, Londoners did not like those closed stoves partly through the writings of Dickens they loved the open fire they like the idea of having a cheery, open, flame-filled fire as the centre point of their room. In fact, as late as 1945, George Orwell is saying, well, why should we get rid of the open fire? It just creates a wonderful central base for the family to crowd around and, and converse. Now,
1: and there's something beautiful and primal about that, but, well, actually, I was reading a a scientific piece very recently about how awful open fires are for you and indeed uh, stoves in the home i think aren't particularly good for you but if you've got health and environmental concerns the time to expect them to have something done about them is not the middle of the industrial revolution presumably uh, i wonder how able they were to measure negative health effects of these smogs
2: well they were very aware quite early on in the 19th century that it was killing people especially well, the...
1: they'd, have, they'd have spotted the people falling into the river presumably
2: well <laughs> well they there's a distinction there are those people that are killed because of the fog i.e because they can't see their way ahead and there are those people who are killed by the fog and uh, of course one of the problems is the impact of the death rates might not come for two or three weeks so people might start coughing they might start coughing up black mucus um, but they might not die for three four weeks um, because their lungs can't discharge the um, particulates that are clogging in them so is the elderly who are very vulnerable, it's babies, it's people with um, emphysema, lung complaints. That is one of the problems of trying to push through legislation against this fog. People know anecdotally that it kills, but the death rates can be blamed on other things. So... If the death rate peaks during winter, well, it's probably because they've all got flu and they died from that. And that was actually something that was used in many of the governments in the mid-20th century. Oh, well, we shouldn't worry about this, it's flu. To actually try and get tangible evidence to say this actually kills people was quite difficult, especially during the 19th century, although anecdotally, everyone knew it killed
1: even with the unreliability of the uh, attributions of cause of death. Have you got any idea of the sort of numbers we're talking about?
2: Well, off the top of my head, I'd like to grab the book and check. Um, It is in the book. But I mean, in the one month in November, I think in the 1870s, 1873, I think the usual death rate of Londoners was something like 100, 150. And it's it peaked up during that week of 700 but as i say if we talk about the 1952 smog even then death rates are are disputed so the government admits that the death rate was probably about 4000 from the 1952 smog but there are academics who have actually analyzed the the death rates the the reasons for death and say it's as high as 12000 so These are very controversial figures, but there's no doubt about it that the 1952 smog was really the one that shook everyone, especially post-World War. They said, actually, we fought a war, we should have a cleaner London, we should have a cleaner environment, we should not be putting up with this. But even then, Macmillan was very reluctant to pass the Clean Air Act.
1: Yeah, and that seems to be a theme that runs through from Victorian times, somebody getting in the way of every attempt. Not that it seems that there are a massive number of them, but every attempt to make the air cleaner, particularly for poorer people, uh, seems to have been blocked by somebody with big industrial interests.
2: Yes, of course. And uh, what's interesting is actually the other side, how every decade there's always um, a spokesperson for clean air mckinnon in the early 19th century palmerston had a go and of course right up to the 1950s when barrow was successful john bright was actually an advocate against um uh, reforming the air um, because you know he had industrial interests He's very strange because you would have actually expected him to be a greater advocate for the the poor people too because there's no doubt about it that the poor were mainly affected by the fog. I mean, because of the the west east wind direction, a lot of the smoke would actually go over the poorer areas of, of East London, which is why traditionally it was the poorer area. I'm
1: really interested in this idea of the wind taking all the airborne rubbish across to the East End, and uh, presumably, if you you had the financial ability to do so. You'd get out of there as quickly as possible, and if you understood the risk, you would presumably position yourself in the in the west of town or out of town altogether. So, in a way, this is ensuring that the place stays poor, stays filthy across that uh, industrial period.
2: Yeah, I mean, um, certainly many many people prefer to live in. Many wealthy people who had a choice would live in the west of London because of the because of the smoke. And of course during the nineteenth century, as the fog problem actually became worse, um, it was much more difficult to avoid it because um, the fog would actually remain in the west of London. So early on, when there was a bit of a breeze, the smoke would move to the east and they would suffer from smoke inhalation. Whereas actually when there was no breeze, the fog, the smoke would remain stagnant in its place and, of course, then the West, Western parts, the wealthier parts of London, would then suffer. And that is really when the whole of London starts suffering from it, because um, there's a greater concentration of smoke going up into the air on on a very kind of windless day. It would just stay in one position and any part of London could be affected. Um, So it became the whole of London's problem. But it certainly was effectively the East End's problem when there was a breeze. They actually quite often refer to the parks in London. And when you fly in over London, you realise how many green parks we have. Um, They were known as the Lungs of London. Well, of course, you know, that does work when there's a breeze and and the smoke might go across the parks and through the other side. But, you know, sometimes when the air's stagnant, there's no difference between the parks and the, the rest of London. So, But it's interesting calling the parks the Lungs of London.
1: You mentioned that uh, particularly horrific, was it 1952, the particularly horrific uh, fog? What other milestones or, or memorable dates are there in the history of London's fog?
2: Well, most seasons would actually have some measure of fog from November to February. They even had foggy months in March, April occasionally. Um, but the, the other big one was 1873, which um, was a, equivalent to the 1952 smog. But the 1873 it lasted about five six days the whole of London was brought to a standstill but it actually occurred at the same time as the Smithfield cattle show um, which was in the Royal Agri- Agricultural Hall in Islington and just as they brought the animals in these prize cattle sheep pigs etc fog descended And the animals, especially the prize cattle, started exhibiting um, distress, started coughing, started suffocating... And even though they tried to open the doors, which of course brings in more fog, they tried, you know, to introduce some disinfectant in the hall, etc. These animals were panting in a very distressed manner and many of them died. I think about 80 to 90 died. And of course, you know, it was that they brought them out. They tried to bring them out into the air, but the air was just just as clogged with fog and it was a disaster and in fact you know all the newspapers took this on and said this is just utter cruelty we're putting these animals under this stress and actually if these animals are dying what's it in fact doing to people and that was a real wake-up call the 1873 fog um as i say many many animals died ironically The nineteen fifty two smog also occurred at the same time the Smithville Cattle Show occurred, and again quite a few animals died. A Transporting the animals into the show in the 1952 smog, it took seven hours for what was normally a half an hour journey, with the animal being stuck inside a lorry. In the 1873 show, the the main problem was the animals were already there and they couldn't be got out. Partly because the way the show was managed, you had to get permission from the show's exhibitors to move your animal. The show's exhibitors didn't really want them moved moved out of London because they. had advertisers and exhibition holders who were relying on the show to take place. But it was a disaster. It was a PR disaster. And funnily enough, many of the cheaper cattle and many of the sheep and pigs did survive. Partly the sheep and pigs, of course, are lower to the ground. So they're actually they're actually managing to get slightly cleaner air. But also because the cheaper cattle, their, their straw bedding was not changed as frequently as the um, prize cattle. There's a school of thought that that says because they were doing their business in the straw, it creates a kind of disinfectant which actually helped the animals to breathe. So the fact that these prize cattle had their straw cleaned daily did not really help them.
1: Well, that's astonishing. Uh, a law of unintended consequences <laughs> going on there. Uh, well, it also brings to mind, of course, that a lot of the artistic class and, and a lot of poorer people, tailors in the East End, would be up in upper-storey rooms, wouldn't they? And presumably that's taking the brunt of it. If uh, if, if the, the ground level is has got that little bit of clean air running under it, you're in trouble if you're in a second-floor loft.
2: Yes, you're not only in trouble because you're breathing in this stuff, but also you're working with clean fabrics which you can't allow to be soiled. So in fact Dickens uh, co-writes um, an article in Household Words and he's talking to these tailors. That's when he uses the term London particular actually and uh, they're saying the London particulars get into the cloth, they soil the cloth and therefore it's unusable and it's costing us money. Shops of course they would display their wares and and uh, especially coming up to Christmas they would get sold, they would be unsaleable and they would have to be sold at a knockdown price after Christmas. Clerks who were um, writing in their ledgers they were actually fined if they left their ledger books open and little specks of of soot would get into the ledgers they tried to erase it and of course created a nasty black mark. they would actually be fined for that.
1: I'm going to make a note to myself. If I end up in a time travel experiment and uh, find myself in that era, I'm not going to go into floristry or bridal wear. (laughs) No, (laughs) because there's there's some amazing pictures as well in your book of St Paul's Cathedral being not only socked in by fog, but we couldn't see the chap doing the preaching.
2: No, there's a a wonderful story about how. Uh, they tried to carry on as usual of course and one of the things you couldn't easily cancel was a Sunday service and so uh, the congregation were there listening to um, um, a sermon from the pulpit which was actually called the light of the world and yet they could not see the the person who was giving the sermon. Um, People had to carry on as best they could especially if they didn't have the money to counterfeit day as night so there are some characters in novels who are wealthy enough to be able to shut the curtains and say, well, I'm going to pretend today is the evening, I'm going to stoke up my fire, thereby exacerbating the problem, and I'm going to sit all day and read my book and pretend, you know, I've got an extended evening here. For many other people, they just had to get into work, groping their way along the railings, trying to avoid the River Thames, um, and, you know, and try and sell their wares. And, of course, people are not out buying um, so it's going to affect them. And, of course, they're using up a lot of lighting, uh, fuel for lighting, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
1: And this influenced, I think, the art as well, didn't it, in a number of different ways, the art of the period?
2: Yes, it did. I mean, coming back to your St Paul's question, I mean, there are a lot of painters who paint St Paul's shrouded in fog. And, of course, there's a kind of moral dimension here that the fog represents the immorality, the corruption of London, and it's taking over the religious icon. Um, Daubigny, um, the French artist, paints a wonderful painting of St Paul's, cathedral through the fog in i think it's 1873 but ironically most british artists who were living in london complained vociferously about the fog they said this is hopeless we must have clearer skies we can't see the sun we um it's just making it impossible for us to paint so they they built these large kind of glass studios which didn't really help so in the end they kind of said well we have to sacrifice painting here in london France etc etc for the clearer skies. Ironically of course we then have people like Whistler, Monet, lovely Japanese artist called Yoshio Markino coming over to specifically paint London fog. So let's take Claude Monet. He comes over in the 1870s, he paints a few kind of slightly foggy, hazy... Um, pictures, but it obviously sticks in his mind, and so in the early 1900s, he comes back over uh, several visits and he paints probably about 100 120 canvases, of which we've got about 35. And he paints them, he, he paints bits of each canvas um, as the fog changes. And what he sees is the beauty of it, he sees the color, He he paints purple, he paints green he paints yellow, exactly the same um, view of Charing Cross Bridge or Waterloo Bridge um, but he, he shows how the fog is moving and changing the actual um, structure behind it um, he, sees, he sees the fog as making London beautiful because of course it, it softens the harsh lines of the building the London brick etc Whistler again came over to paint the, the fog but the one i'd really like to highlight is joshio marquino who actually stopped off at san francisco from japan um, to paint san francisco mists and found them very disappointing so then made his way to london and was both um, terrified and awestruck by london fog so he would actually walk around london saying oh I actually find it very frightening to walk through fog, not knowing where I'm going, not being able to see the hand in front of my face. Oh, I'm, I must go out and buy some kind of respirator to protect, you know, my, my, my breathing. Um, but he also found it beautiful. And he paints some wonderful pictures which are used in Lofty's Colour of London, which comes out around the turn of the century. And he continues to paint fog until he has to go back um, just before the Second World War.
1: Now, well, the idea of the fog having all these coloured qualities to it as well is one that I hadn't considered before. It's I think we're used perhaps to Hollywood representations of the fog in Jack the Rippery type things or Sherlock Holmes films, and it looks much like a fog today in uh, Richmond Park might look, and, and that clearly isn't the way it would have appeared.
2: No I mean a natural fog in London is white and uh, I think you know the recent fog we had uh, a week ago that was very much a white cloud tinged with pollution from diesel particulars but we'll come to that later I'm sure but in the 19th 20th century up to 1962 the fog could range in colour anything from grey to black to yellow to green and sometimes it would have a purple tinge. I mean, Monet wasn't making it up when he was painting it. You know, some people say that Monet was suffering, you know, from some kind of visual impairment. I mean, I, the fogs really right, he was. He couldn't see anything. <laughs> no, well, he was, but, but that was through the fog. Um, but uh, quite often people talk about the fact that fog is town mist coloured by smoke, coloured by, uh, by the coal smoke. But it's coloured in various ways. There's a wonderful passage in Charles Dickens' Our Mutual Friend, where Dickens describes country fog that's white. And as it creeps closer to London, it becomes grey on the outskirts of London. As it gets closer still, it becomes brown. And then when it reaches the heart of London, it becomes black, a rusty black. And uh, I think, you know, there there were graduations of colour.
1: We have to take and are proud to take a word from our sponsor. Uh, if you like the show, uh, give a bit of love to our sponsor. Um, that's how it all fits together. That's how it works. That's how we're able to keep producing the podcast each week. On the other side of the break, we're going to be coming back with good information for you, uh, not only free lectures and the sort of fare that is on offer here at Gresham College. If you like TED Talks, for example, you're going to really like this. But I also want to stack up the average uh, figure for deaths during this uh, Fairly horrific, foggy period with the air quality figures. Now, can you just remind me, before we go into this? Can you remind me of a, sort of an average year's fatalities from uh, from foggy pollution?
2: The 1952 smog probably four thousand to twelve thousand people died from it.
1: Okay, so we've got rid of the smog now, uh, listener. What do you think our average air pollution uh, related deaths are at this time? The answer to that and uh, much more in just a moment.
2: The Week magazine is a concise, refreshing and balanced take on the news from the past seven days. Taken from over 200 print and online sources, we give you the best news, comment and opinion from the UK and overseas, bringing you up to date with everything you need to know. What's more, you'll also get the lighter side of the news, with the latest arts, people, food and drink, travel, properties and much more. Available in print, digital or both, it's the perfect solution for anybody who wants an intelligent and independent view of what's going on in the world. Don't just take our word for it. Get your first issue for free. Sign up at www.theweek.co.uk forward slash Londonist.
1: You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe and we're at Gresham College and we've got what I think is a first for the podcast here. Uh, Christine Corton... Lady Evans, I should say, is, is going to do Bob Hope jokes for us. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast wasn't you uh, wasn't to take a turn of this sort.
2: No, no. I don't generally use the Lady Evans. That's obviously my, my husband's uh, been knighted for his services to scholarship. And I was part of that, I suppose. I helped support him, etc. in his work. So, But I generally use my own title, which is Doctor, and my own surname. And it always seemed to me a bit hypocritical to start calling myself by as Lady Evans when I'd never used his surname before, so it's a bit of a feminist (laughs) thing.
1: (laughs) Which leaves the tantalising prospect of some comedy here. I didn't realise, and I only found it out through one of your articles, I think it was in the New York Times, that Bob Hope was a Londoner.
2: Yeah, he was London-born, um, but of course lived most of his life in America. And in fact, he came over, I think, in the late 1950s to do a film. I'm I'm Petticoat. I think it was 55, and he did a few gigs as well. And uh, he, of course. Um, got to see London fog and uh, of course he'd heard it by reputation as well so he always refers to uh, he referred to say Californian smog as um, uh, fog with the vitamins removed (laughs) Uh, so the idea that fog is food is very common actually it's a recurring theme and he would use as part of his um, act sorry i was late it was because of the fog i tried to whistle for a cab but i just couldn't find my mouth
1: <laughs> <laughs> so th- so this had international currency then as well the uh, the, the london fog even as late as uh, well just before it's um, now what's the what's the word we need for the abolition of fog there, should, there ought to be a, a precise term for this
2: the death of fog. <laughs> the death of fog, wow,
1: yeah. Which seems to have been a slow death if Nabarro got the Clean Air Act introduced in '56, I think, and then still there were smogs up until the early 60s.
2: Yeah, well, it takes time. You can't just remove that overnight. If you could have done, then it would have been removed much earlier. You have to convert hearths to um, you, uh, to be able to burn smokeless fuels, uh, and you also have to have the, the piles of smokeless fuels ready for the customer, so all of that had to be done over a series of a series of stages many of the new houses that were built post second world war there was a big debate whether these houses should actually have cleaner methods of heating and cooking i.e. not allowed to have open fires for many of them they just actually took the cheaper option and just put in an open fire you had to get people on your side to use gas electricity and make it cheaper for people to use and i think in the 1950s it all came together i think as i said before there was a view that life should be better after having fought a world war And gas electricity was becoming the much more practical, viable, cheaper option. And people could relate the smoke that they were producing to um, the open fire that they were burning. But, come back to your question, yes, 1962 was the last major smog. And I hope in my book that I get across the excitement, the race to introduce clean air acts within the boroughs as well after the City of London. The City of London was the first area to actually go completely smokeless Um, but that was easy because they didn't actually have many domestic housing uh, so they could just tell industries to clean up their act. Holborn was actually the second one after the City of London but many of the boroughs were saying will go smokeless completely by the 1970s. In fact, most of them went smokeless by the middle of the 1960s. So they really, really then took it on as something that they wanted to achieve very quickly.
1: So we're right at the heart of the revolution here.
2: Yes, absolutely. Yes, and of course, there were the new industrial cities uh, like Manchester, Birmingham, they were much quicker on the uptake of cleaning their own air. London was a much more difficult prospect.
1: Well so back to that question then perhaps because things have changed and fuel types have shifted around and our modes of transport have changed. You mentioned a figure of 4 to 12,000 fatalities quite a range prior to the Clean Air Act. What's the situation now?
2: Well, it's still pretty bad. I think the latest figure was 9,500 in 2013. But of course, the haze, the smog that we've got now is mainly due to diesel particulates. Again, that is actually a problem that we need to resolve quicker than we're going to. I think one of the things that I hope to get over in my book is how long it took to get legislation through to confront the smoke caused by coal. Now we've got the same problem um, in terms of car emissions. It's killing a lot of people. Again, I think some people would actually probably debate that figure, but there's no doubt it's having an impact on human life. And My view is if it kills just one person, then we should be thinking seriously about confronting it and one of the disappointing things um, certainly about uh, the 1968 Clean Air Act which toughened up the restrictions from the 1956 Clean Air Act um, was that they were very much thinking should we start thinking about car emissions and they didn't and that was a real opportunity missed I think because at that point people were very keen on keeping the air clean
1: but it's, it's the visible stuff that was preoccupying them by the sense of it. Now, I, w- I was wondering whether this book about fog comes from... You're, you're a doctor at Wolfson College, Cambridge. Does that come from your academic line there?
2: Yeah I got my PhD based on called Metaphor of Fog in uh, Victorian Edwardian culture but my my thesis only goes up to 1914 and it's much more academic in tone obviously to get a doctorate in fact um, I rewrote the thesis completely for the book and I've taken it up to present day so it's got some stuff in from the thesis um, but most of it is completely new.
1: I want to talk about Gresham College which your husband has a more than a passing connection with but I'd like to uh, tickle Jekyll and Hyde if possible.
2: Yes you mentioned Jekyll and Hyde and uh, Sherlock Holmes earlier. One of the things about Sherlock Holmes is that um, most of the later adaptations, certainly the film adaptations, always have Sherlock Holmes going through London fog. In fact, there's surprisingly little London fog in the Sherlock Holmes stories. It does happen, the Bruce Partington plans, that fog is very essential to the story. That's the one where the body is put on the top of the tube and it's necessary for it to be foggy so that no one can see what the person is doing and of course Sherlock Holmes feels imprisoned by the fog he's very restless um he he says if we were in Italy and Italy was suffering from this fog some assassin some Italian assassin would take advantage of it and murder me you know without me even knowing that they were coming up behind me um so the fog is a is a symbol of his restlessness. In Jekyll and Hyde, most people associate the fog with the murder of the MP Danvers Carew. In fact, that murder takes place on a clear night. It has to take place on a clear night because the maid has to see Hyde Completely so she can describe him. It's only on the following day after the murder that the fog descends and suddenly the world is in darkness.
1: There's a metaphor for mystery there.
2: Yes, yes. Let's go on to Jack the Ripper, which is another. Oh, do we have to? I know you like him. I've I've heard some of the podcasts. (laughs) I mean, somehow London can't do without his Jack the Ripper stories, can it?
1: (laughs) He's also associated with Creeping About in the Fog.
2: He is, very much so. And uh, the first fictional adaptation based around his murders uh, was by Marie belloc Lowndes, The Lodger, which is a book I heartily recommend. And she has a serial murderer who commits almost all of his murders in the fog and Lowndes actually worked for WT Stead um, w- when the Jack the Ripper murders were taking place and they were actually being described in the, the press by Stead and he made up a lot as well and she obviously thought about this and remembered it. And in when she wrote the book, she actually read the book in tons and tons of fog. The opening page opens with fog. It finishes in fog. The murderer actually feels happier when the fog descends. And the landlady, who suspects that he is the serial murderer, wonders why this is. Well, of course, for him, it has the practical advantage of him being able to creep up on his victims and kill them without them running away or having any chance of defending themselves. So the fog is very integral to the part, uh, to the novel. Later, film adaptations of Jack the Ripper always have fog. But on only one night was it raining when Jack the Ripper actually committed his crimes and on almost every other night it was clear so...
1: We're going to do a swerve. You know, I get I get emails whenever Jack the Ripper gets mentioned. Sorry, yes, you're entirely to blame for this. Uh, we're going to do a swerve. We're going to talk about Gresham College, which, uh, as I said in my introduction, I managed to miss. It's a very modest frontage going on here. What's behind the, uh, the the entrance to Gresham College? What is Gresham College?
2: Well, Gresham College is actually on the site of Barnard's Inn, which, of course. Uh, Let's get back to Dickens, where Pip, of course, stays. But Gresham College is a wonderful college. It offers free lectures most weeks. Some of them take place in the Museum of London. Some of them take place here at Gresham. On any subjects, from astrology to maths to literature to art, by academics who are renowned in their own subject areas, they're free. They start at 6 o'clock for an hour. You can ask questions And they're all put on the website. If you download the app, free of charge, you can actually access any of the lectures uh, from the comfort of your own home. And I think the website has about 6 or 7 million hits a year. It's incredibly popular. And it's a wonderful resource for people who are working and living in London.
1: I'm going to be adding to the footfall here and the website hits almost immediately. I had no idea about this. What I want to know is how. How is this a thing?
2: Well, it's actually funded um, through... The City of London, th- from Thomas Gresham, who left some money in his will. So this goes back to the 17th century. Um, but it's a small, it's a, as you say, it's a small, modest building from the outside and it actually has small staff as well I mean there is about five or six members of staff plus a provost who just happens to be my husband
1: <laughs> and we've got well there's, there's all sorts of stuff I've been told not under any circumstances to mention the Christmas lecture so I'm definitely not mentioning that <laughs> I believe it's oversubscribed and then some but right around the year there are lectures as you say and some of the uh, items well there's, there's too many to mention what you need to do is get yourself to Chance Lane and pick up a leaflet or get on to go and tap Gresham in, and you'll find uh, stuff on astronomy, commerce, divinity, environment, geometry. Have you
2: done a lecture here? I'm due to do a lecture next year. What are you going to be talking about? I'm going to actually be talking about um, art um, in London. There's a series of artists who came to London to paint pictures of London, and I shall do the foreign artists such as Monet and Whistler, and obviously I'll mention fog. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I can't let you go. I and mean, we ha- I have to let you go, but I can't let you go without relating to us the experience of one fellow in a particularly f- foggy night who found himself up an elephant.
2: Yes, H.V. Morton, who was a well-known travel writer. He was walking through London, Haymarket, I think, through a particularly foggy night, and suddenly he hears shuffling sound in front of him, and as he gets closer to it, he wonders what it is, and looming through the fog it looks like the back of an elephant. So he rushes up, thinking he's just imagining it. And in fact, it is an elephant, wandering through the streets of London, being led by um, a person trying to get to the circus in Olympia and completely lost. And so he asks Morton to hold his elephant while he phones (laughs) from a phone booth, remember those folks, um, and to tell them that he is on his way, um, but he will be a few hours late. Morton says in his book how many people have actually held onto an elephant in the middle of London town during a fog. <laughs> it's a rather wonderful image, isn't it? Uh, it, it
1: is and it's, it's one uh, with which we listener must leave you. London Fog published by uh, Harvard, isn't it?
2: Harvard University Press at the very good price of 22.95 because it's got lots of pictures in.
1: Rush out and buy your copy. Christine Corton, thanks very much.
2: Thank you very much Quentin. It's been very enjoyable. Oh!
1: And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Christine Corton. Thanks too to Mark Bart and Bernie Barkley. Theme and in incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe.